disease is a medical problem. An epidemic is a social problem because it is how we react to sickness, to illness, to disease, to the unknown, and to the scary. Fear is, is a huge motivator in these circumstances. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Hello, I'm Tyler Pitroff, and welcome to Preble Hall. Today I'm here with Major Joe Ennett, who has just completed his three-year tour? Two years. I only finished two here. Oh, right. You were going to do three. Correct. That's right. His two-year tour with the History Department faculty here at the United States Naval Academy. Today I decided we'd have him on for something a little bit more relevant to what's going on in current events. I'm sure all of us have heard plenty about the coronavirus pandemic, and I'm sure we're all also very tired of hearing a lot about it. (laughs) However, Joe has a particular interest in the history of epidemic diseases, and he actually just taught a class on that uh, this last semester. So uh, what got you into that idea? Because obviously this has been an interest of yours from since before the pandemic started. Yes, I feel like I've always had to qualify that every time that I tell people this is a research interest of mine, uh, because they're always like, oh, because of the COVID pandemic? And I'm like, well, no, this was a thing for me well before coronavirus was a thing. Um, This was, if I had to nail it down, I would have to go way, I mean, way, way back. We're talking like middle school or earlier uh, and I would think I got assigned like an English paper project or something. And, and for whatever reason, I decided to do it on VX nerve gas. It was, you know, the early, it was, this is pre 9-11. This is early to, this is 2000, maybe 1999. And I was like, oh, this sounds like an interesting thing. There was a National Geographic article on it. And and I realized I didn't really know much about it. And I made the mistake of asking my father, uh, who's a, uh, who's a, practicing pediatrician for 42, 43 years. I think he just retired uh, a few years ago. And, you know, doctor, very chemistry brain. And I remember asking him, so what is this and how does this work? And, oh, man, the the note cards come out and the little drawings with the sticks and arrows. And I learned way more about uh, acetylcholinesterase and all sorts of nerve induction sites and receptor proteins and things that I had absolutely no idea what was going on in my eighth grade brain. And considering I didn't do well in AP chemistry anyway, you know, maybe it didn't stick very well, but I will never forget him going through all of that with me. And, you know, it's equal parts fascinating and equal parts morbid as I kind of wanted to learn more about this, like, what what is this thing that affects the body and how are these these nonsensical, almost invisible chemical processes can kill you like that. And it, you know, chemical and biologicals moved on into that, and then I became more and more interested in diseases. And as I became more and more of a historian... Because I, you're a naval historian. I, I, by training, I'm, by, by training I'm a military historian, you're correct. And, uh, and that's always been my, my, you know, my more structured background, if you will. But this has always been sort of a, a dread fascination, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, in understanding disease as a context. Because you know, for the modern world, in the, post, you know, in, the, in the post-Cold War world, antibiotics are normal. Vaccines are standard. You know, we, in the early 90s, we were really feeling like we had started to conquer disease, but that's not really true at all. But this idea that we grew up in this world 
where disease doesn't really happen like that. People get sick. Sure, there's disease. It's rampant. It's everywhere. We've, we've lived through our, our scares of, of pandemics and epidemics and now the coronavirus pandemic. But they're always you know, far away and, 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 and different. They were never part of the daily life of things. It wasn't back in the day when you, know, you had to have a family of nine kids because a third of them were going to die from smallpox. And then the other two-thirds were at risk for typhus or diphtheria or uh, cholera or the flu or whatever else would just randomly kill you walking down the streets from getting sick and dying. You know, we're talking about a time period where 90% of urban populations were infected with tuberculosis, latent or active. It was part of daily life. Disease was everywhere. Including in the military. Including in the military. Correctly, disease was the number one cause of casualties for any military force up until the 20th century. In exactly in every war until World War II. And part of that is the British invention of of penicillin. But also we had changed a lot of the ways that armies deploy and mobilize. Uh, we we stopped doing the mass uh, organized uh, the grand army sort of marching in sequence sort of thing that we had seen in even as late as World War 1. We didn't mass people like that anymore by World War II. So we, just, we, we limited the opportunities for disease in the same fashions as well. But that comes back to the social consciousness of understanding disease. And medical history is a field that doesn't get as much press as it should either uh, because so much of it was, I want to say, static. There was this long period of human history where nothing really changed in medicine. And then it was so slow to change because there's so much resistance to these, to, to, these idea, to these new ideas, to this burgeoning social and scientific understanding. And then, much like politics and the military sort of take off after the Enlightenment, so does medicine. But even it still has a harder resistance. Like we're still, um, you know, germ theory as we know it is a 20th century invention. The 20th century is really when we start seeing these understandings of disease and transmission and, you know, viruses are, are theoretical until the late 30s when we can finally see one with an electron microscope. That's how late some of this stuff that we take for granted comes in. And that has always fascinated me as this forgotten reality that we've never been a part of. And... That is one of the things that has always deeply interested me as a historian, is trying to understand that context and how that really affected everything. I mean, everyday life, absolutely, but also the military, society, culture, politics, movie, art, everything. It was so inexorably bound up in that. It was as part of daily life before, the, you know, in, you know, before World War I as breathing or not breathing in the case of tuberculosis. So that has been a, a, a dread fascination and something that I've always been interested in from a research angle and not to play opportunism on the coronavirus pandemic, but when COVID broke out, I was already in the process of looking to teach a, an upper level class here uh, in my last year uh, or what may have been my last year. And I was, you know, waffling between, ah, do I just want to teach the first world war or do I want to try and do this thing on epidemics? I, I, I think we were joking about it, a couple of the, uh, me and the other professors, and uh, uh, Captain John Fryman was sort of like, hey, uh, I'll sponsor you for that class if you want to teach it. I was like, um, okay. <laughs> so I, I put in for it, and the, uh, the uh, department was uh, kind enough to give me the shot at teaching it. 
and I, uh, I I got the opportunity to teach a 300 level upper level elective uh, in the history of epidemic diseases in my last semester to a, a group of uh, mostly first classmen, uh, several history majors, but also uh, the two. Uh, well, they're both chemistry majors, actually, but they were the two uh, first classmen that were selected to join the Med Corps to go pursue their medical degrees and their and their medical careers in the Navy. Um, so I got to kind of teach a history of epidemic diseases to two future doctors and to anything else. That's I'm I'm counting that as my checkbox of of awesomeness. That was so cool for me uh, to do that. I introduced it as welcome to the most relevant history class you'll ever take because I'm teaching about epidemics in the middle of an epidemic. And that was fascinating, not just from a pedagogical standpoint, but from you know both the the, the content standpoint and the classroom interaction standpoint, because uh, there was so many opportunities for me to say, "Hey, does this look familiar?" And for every student to be like, "Yes, yes, it does. I understand where these things come from now." And that was every aspect of everything that we lived through during the, the during the pandemic, especially for these kids in uh, here at the Naval Academy. Um, I, I decided to, to sort of take the course rather than try to go chronologically um, because it's really hard to, to do that and keep, because you know, the, the diseases cross over, there's so many happening at the same time and everything. So I decided to kind of go disease by disease and roughly chronologically. So like you start with the granddaddy of them all, plague. Uh, there have been three major plague pandemics ever. Um, the first pandemic, the plague of Justinian, uh, early uh, the, uh, first millennia, uh, wasn't as dramatic as really the second pandemic, which is called the Black Death. Uh, but we tend to think of the 1347 to 1349 major epidemic across Europe as the, the Black Death. But in reality, the second pandemic lasts until the late 1800s. Because it goes in waves. Plague comes and then goes away, but then it comes back and it goes away and it comes back. Then never took more than 12 years off before a major event in which another you know, 100,000 people die or several million people die or depending on where it broke out and when um, globally as well for the second pandemic uh, until around 18, I want to say 1870 to 1890. It finally takes about 40 to 50 years off and long enough that they determine when it comes back in the late 1880s that this is now the third pandemic. And technically the third pandemic is not over. Plague is still, it still occurs in portions of West and Central Africa that is still tied to that third plague pandemic that broke out in Yuan province of China in the 1880s. So the, the plague is still happening. The bubonic plague still kills people in the world. That's crazy. But that was a, a fascinating thing. But the, as much as the class was talking about the diseases and the impacts on society and on people, it was as much of an understanding of, what's the right way to put it? People don't react to the disease. They react to the reaction to the disease. The way that I had to frame the class and the way that, it, that, that, that I picked it up, and I, I will always say it this way, is that a disease is a medical problem. An epidemic is a social problem because it is how we react to sickness, to illness, to disease, to the unknown, and to the scary. You know, fear is, is a huge motivator in these circumstances, but the unknown 
or what you're being told from competent authorities or what you assume to be competent authorities is a driving factor in the reaction to disease, and that is what causes epidemics. So for as much as it's an understanding of the movement of the disease, it's the reactions, the public health measures, what people, governments, religions, organizations, and doctors did in reaction to the outbreak of the disease to either attempt to cure or contain the disease. Sometimes those were met with reasonable reactions. The quarantine was a reaction to plague. Quarantine, the, the, the word itself, comes from the, the Italian word for 40 because they determined that if in Venice they were going to quarantine for 40 days, the ships coming into Venice on an island uh, off, uh, off, excuse me, out in the Venice Harbor before they could come into the town. They didn't pick 40 for any real reason other than a biblical reference. There was 40 days and 40 nights, so they figured, okay, 40 days and 40 nights here. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus' temptations were 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. Cool. 40 is a great biblical number for them to pick. They got lucky. The life cycle of the fleas that were on the rats is 36 days. By pure lucky happenstance, 40 was the perfect number for a quarantine period. For, black, uh, for bubonic plague. But because that was the granddaddy of them all, and that was hands down the most effective public health measure, quarantine became the instant reaction for every government everywhere in response to plague. Sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't, but we didn't understand what was spreading plague yet. It's not until late in the third pandemic that, we able to, that we're actually able to identify the flea rat vector as transmitting the disease. We just thought it was bad air still or other forms of, um, of miasma or, or my favorite, the, uh, there was a planetary alignment that caused the uh, earthly energies or excuse me, celestial energies of Jupiter to pass to, to Earth and thereby causing low-lying areas to become heavy with plague. Uh, it's... it's yeah, exactly. It's that kind of nonsense, <laughs> but when you had no idea you know, to, to separate from the modern understanding where we have these, these concepts and these ideas, you know, we, we know viruses, we understand human physiology, we have these, these concepts of anatomy and everything, they understand even human anatomy. It made as much sense to anybody as any other theory they had. In fact, if you had come in and said, so there's tiny, invisible, living things that make you sick everybody would have been like that's crazy at least bad air makes sense awful stuff smells awful don't touch it i mean that sounds logical to me exactly i mean it's it's, it's why it, that eventually became another theory of disease as well after we get past the miasmic theories uh we get into the the filth theories of disease which was basically corruption grossness and the um decomposition of living things or other organic matter causes illness. We step through the different diseases, they all come about, but there were so many different you know, diseases and the ways that they impacted people and these different public health measures, like smallpox was the second major disease that they ended up talking about, and it has a long human history. Um, with the possible exception of malaria, smallpox has killed more human beings than any other cause of death in all of human history. In the 20th century, Smallpox is still the greatest single killer of mankind. And smallpox was eradicated in 1973. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. It, it, exactly. I mean, it, it was a, I mean, 
variola, uh, variola major, and then variola minor later, but the, the, the variola virus, the actual virus that causes smallpox as a disease, only affects humans. It evolved with humans as the perfect symbiotic human killing machine. It only killed 30% of uh, those it infected. That's, that's a, a reasonable number to both infect, continue propagation, and not like die out. It's one of the things that I always like watch, like the, you know, the zombie movies or the post-apocalyptic whatever movies about viruses that kill, you know, 95 to 100 percent of everybody that makes that gets them uh, that, that that contracts the virus. And I thought it's nonsense. You know, a virus is you know, the debate rages whether you could consider them living or not. It's a, the best description I've ever heard is it is a single it is a, a piece of DNA wrapped in bad news. And that's pretty much what it is. But it has the single driving motivation, which is to continue existence. So anything that infects and kills 100% of its host and kills itself off in the process is a useless organism. By Darwinian principles, it will stop doing that. So diseases that tend to start with insanely high uh, mortality rates drop off as the disease progresses through humanity because it doesn't want to kill everybody. That wouldn't serve the disease any benefit. So smallpox doesn't affect anybody else. We were the only reservoir. It only lived in humans. And if you think about it in that way, from the time that smallpox started infecting humans until the last day it went away, the only way smallpox transmitted was from a person to another person. No intermediaries. No, no, no other methodologies. No, no other vectors. So it comes back to epidemics are social. They require people in close proximity to other people. The so that humans are social creatures. It's, it's, it's our defense mechanism. It was our evolutionary tool for survival was we got in groups together. That allows disease to spread. So with that in mind, and I assume that's one of the overarching concepts for your class, Correct. right? With that in mind, what, what was your primary objective in teaching the midshipmen about the history of epidemics. What, what were you trying to do above? You know, usually when you give a syllabus to your students on the first day of class, you'll say, in this class, we will learn. What did you identify as your objective? I'm curious. As the pandemic continued around us, I ended up shifting those, those ideas a couple times. Uh, it definitely was, I wanted them to understand that context, to understand disease as medical, epidemic as social. And the, you know, it's not the disease, it's the reactions to the disease, to understand how people and societies and governments play into management of disease at a public level. Uh, the second, and that was the, the second, much more of the evolving sort of ideas the pandemic went through, was to understand public health and public health relevance in you know historical diseases, so that they could understand it in their current situation. Um, very rarely do we get an opportunity teaching a history class to say, "Hey, right now, this right now is happening to you. Do you see it? Can you understand it?" As historians, we there is no better moment for us than when we can really apply the lessons of the past. And not just for the sake of expanding our knowledge or for gaining, gaining background, understanding, and grasp of, of knowledge, but to really see it in, pub, in person, to go, hey, I've seen this movie before and I know how it goes. 
or, you know, I bet I understand why they're doing it this way because back in the day, this is what we had to do. That moment was, I think, the best for me when I was talking about uh, the Spanish uh, Spanish influenza, the great the great flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920. We tend to forget that it was three separate waves over three separate years and three separate flu seasons, rather than just this one event in 1918, which was, you know, for me, it was going into the coronavirus pandemic now on year two of the coronavirus pandemic here, and everybody's like, oh, this will be, you know, done in a few months, and I'm like, no, not a chance. Buckle up, guys. It's going to be a while. And everybody was yelling at me for being a downer, and I was like, hey, this is, you know, I've, I read a book or two. I'm just saying. Uh, but Sometimes being a historian can get you yelled at by everybody. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's depressing sometimes, that's for sure. And, and, and there were certainly a few days in that class where it was, it was very, very depressing. Well, particularly uh, last spring when we had several successive waves of lockdowns yes uh, after things had started looking up for those who may or may not be familiar the the students here the midshipmen have been generally over the course of the last year in a hybrid half and half course setup where half of the class would be physically present in the classroom distanced wearing masks while the other half would be watching virtually and then normally either on a daily or weekly basis the two halves would switch Unfortunately, there were several instances over the course of the last year that we had to go all virtual. And no matter how effective you can be at teaching virtual, I don't think anyone's going to deny that it's always going to be both more effective more and more engaging in person. Agree. Uh, and the students agreed with that too. They, they hate all virtual simply because it's impossible to engage with the teacher on a personal level fully if you are not actually physically in front of them. Well, it was it was it was equally bad when it was like uh, you know the middle of these lockdowns that get continue getting extended day by day, and they were really down. And I was sort of like, "Hey guys, I feel really bad about that." And I was like, "Cool, now let's talk about smallpox pustules." Like nobody comes out of that as a happy person, right? Like that was just that wasn't a fun lecture to build, much less give, much less watch. Uh, it's really it's really gross. I spared I, I, I spared I nobody's feelings. Yeah, <laughs> put you in a more positive mood because you could be thinking, "Well, it could be worse." <laughs> Something I, you should um, always be able to think during time like we've had recently. I joke uh, with my students, but it's also a true story. Uh, I'm a, I, I didn't go to the Air Force Academy. I'm a Virginia Military Institute graduate. And I would always tell my uh, students that you know, on the really, really bad days uh, at VMI in our first few years, uh, my roommates and I would wake up and look at each other. And we wouldn't have to say much, but we'd just look at each other and go, well, I don't have syphilis. And that was generally enough to, to get you through the day. That's a pretty um, good place to be. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, my, my brain is not slowly melting from tertiary syphilis. I am not dying a slow and painful or rapid and painful diarrhea death from cholera. Hey, it could be a hell of a lot worse. And, and you know, I would drop that on my kids every now and then, and, and that would, you know, not necessarily brighten their day, but at least provide some perspective. It was a fascinating class to teach and fascinating to see their reactions as well, because there were several things that they just didn't didn't, I don't want to say didn't know or didn't see, but didn't grasp the various contexts of, especially when we start talking about things like, you know, cholera or um, uh, tuberculosis, actually, uh, which were the two, uh, to me, both most fascinating and most terrifying, uh, but from that sociocultural context, uh, the most wide-ranging. So what are the big ones 
then for both the class and if you want to go beyond that in general, the big ones meaning the big diseases. So We've the, talked the, the plague. The big epidemics uh, or the big epidemic diseases from history. Okay. Um, plague, smallpox, yellow fever, tuberculosis, cholera, uh, influenza, AIDS. Uh, those were the ones I talked about in class. And then uh, you would also, I would also throw in there, of course, malaria, uh, typhus, and uh, I would make a play for Ebola as well as uh, SARS and now COVID. And just for context, how many of those are still killing people? Uh, all of them except smallpox. So no, no matter how removed we may seem to be from epidemics such as the Spanish flu, we're not quite as removed as we might think. Correct. So if those were the big things you wanted to hit upon in the class, where did you want to then go? So there were several volumes that I, 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 I chose. Um, um, Lots of reading, decent amount of reading. It was How, a lot. Was, there was absolutely a lot of reading. Uh, I had a couple of primary texts uh, that I used as well as uh, medical historian uh, journals and also several primary sources from people during those uh, epidemics in the, in the certain places as well as the, the key medical figures. What was your end goal for the students in that class? Was it the big final paper? I had them do a case study. I, I wanted them each to pick a, a, a major epidemic or a major disease and a major outbreak of it, and then to analyze some aspect of it. I wanted them to, 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 to pull the disease apart, to understand the disease, its background, and its uh, social and cultural impacts within, uh, and medical impacts within that single historical context. I had several uh, fantastic papers. I had one student who actually uh, looked at the... Um, 1918 influenza epidemic here at the Naval Academy and juxtaposed it to the coronavirus epidemic here mm. at the Naval Academy in her same time. Use data archival stuff from the, uh, from the, from the Nimitz library, even stuff here from the, uh, from the Naval Academy museum and a fascinating paper that just put really a hard perspective on understanding what, you know, how similar things were. The, the, the lockdowns were almost identical. Um, but the, you know, what got you sent into lockdown or what got you punished for breaking the, you know, the restrictions were wildly different and wildly harder. You know, the influenza was like if you were caught, you know, skipping quarantine, they kicked you out. That's harsh even by, like, my standards, and I'm serious about epidemics, Right. And there was a couple other ones that were as, as, as equally interesting. Uh, one looked at the, like, you know, the, how the Catholic Church take on the second pandemic, the second plague pandemic, uh, and not during the 1347 major outbreak, but later outbreaks uh, during the second pandemic of plague in Europe uh, in the 15 and 1600s, when the Catholic Church was at its, its almost its, its strongest point uh, pre-Reformation. So it was fascinating amount of different ways that the kids wanted to look at things. And I had actually a fair amount of papers written about uh, HIV AIDS, which I want to say was a little bit of a surprise to me. And I suppose one of those things that made me feel a little bit old because, you know, teaching like world history, you know, uh, in my first couple of years, I almost never wanted to talk about the Cold War because I feel really bad teaching a history class about something I remember seeing live on television. I remember seeing the wall come down. It's weird for me to talk about the Cold War. But I remember 
HIV-AIDS epidemic really becoming a major thing in the early 90s. I, it was weird for me to even bring that up as a historical you know, portion of things. I was like, man, some of these people I'm talking about are still alive. It was odd, but I remember, God had to remember that for most of my students, I've, I've got a good 15 years on them. This was in the past for them. They, they don't remember any of this stuff. This, this was the recent, you know, right before they were born. So they, they ate this stuff up. They really wanted to talk about it, and it was much closer to them. They connected much more with the material, much more with the social consciousness of those things. And they, I must have had five or six papers just about different aspects of HIV, HIV denialism was a, was a popular topic, uh, denialism both in the United States but also in South Africa. South African denialism after Nelson Mandela was uh, traumatic and you know, really, really painful. And then coming off of the cultural memory of apartheid as well and how those cultural mores play into the medical understanding and then into the public health policy because it's about reactions to the disease it was you know it was a fascinating point and i wanted them to be able to get that appreciation in, in at least a single particular disease context uh to be able to uh, grasp the different impacts and influences that not just the disease has but the reactions to that disease can have bottom line there is health and politics have always been linked yes. in one way or another and it's not a unique or novel uh, characterization of the last two years. It's simply been the way things have been for centuries, if not longer. Yes, and there's nothing. There's very much a nothing new is under the sun sort of uh, aspect, especially when I was talking about the second and third waves of flu in 1919 and 1920, as I was showing them pictures of uh, you know a Catholic mass that was being held on the front steps because they couldn't allow people into the church. And I, I was like, look, you can tell it's a mask because most of these people are kneeling next to their cars and everything here in the street because this was during the benediction. It was like, I was like wow, this is kind of cool. Or the, uh, you know, I, I had, if I'm being honest, I played it almost like a game. I would read newspaper articles about you know, people uh, refusing to wear their masks or uh, mask mandates, mask riots, uh, and all these sort of things, and I would have them guess what year this was. And say, was this was this twenty? Was this nineteen twenty or twenty twenty? And they got about a fifty percent accuracy. The, the times that they got it right, or the, most of them got it right, they all said the only reason I was able to tell was because of the language that was being used in the article, just the way that they used the English language. And so it was, it was, it was old school, so it sounded it sounded pre you know pre war. So they were, they took that one and they took a stab at it, and they were right, but. Show them the same pictures, and I was like, "Here, here's a guy who refused to wear his mask, being led away in handcuffs. What year is this? I mean, is, is this is this an old photo or is this Instagram?" And I put the sepia on. They couldn't tell me. Hmm. If, it was, if it wasn't for the stand-up collar, they'd never know. It was it was it's the same things keep happening because again it's not about the disease it's about the public's reaction to the policy and we tend as a as a society to encapsulate those cultural movements and especially cultural reactions to governments and policy especially in the United States where we switch policy and administrations and government styles so often in in the larger perspective that we just bottle those things up put them on the shelf and say that's old now 
we don't go back to it, forgetting that we've we've been down this road before. So the reason that we came that that when this started, we were like, hey, masks and social distancing, and quarantines. They're it's the easiest way. Disease spreads between people. Spread people away. It's a respiratory disease. Cover your mouth and nose. And wash your hands. And wash your as hands. As the sign outside your office. As, as the sign outside my office said, wash your damn hands. That's right, yeah. So to change gears slightly on that note, uh, you are at the moment, as we've said, an accredited naval historian. Y- yes, sure. You are about to begin doctoral studies on this very subject we're discussing, history of epidemic disease. Uh, in a fashion, yes. Uh, at uh, Temple University. Correct. Beginning in this, this fall, uh, right? Yes, yeah, next month. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you, sir. And second of all, so in your pursuit of this degree, and of course things change while you study. Yeah, I, I got to go into research. Well enough me. myself. Yeah. What are you currently looking to pursue specifically? Do you have something in mind for a research project? Do you have some general ideas? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, so uh, part of the, the the gig that I have here uh, with, with getting to go pursue my PhD with the uh, the fact that the military is giving it to me as an assignment, basically. Uh, so Air Force is paying for it, and I got three years to go do it. So I get three years to finish a five- to seven-year degree program. Yeah, I better have an idea going in. If I don't, I'm hosed. <laughs> that, that was um, part of my hope in asking. Whoo, yes. Yeah, no, no, I absolutely do. I um, I want to really tie together both my military history and my uh, my passion for, for uh, infectious disease. And I want to look at, really, the nexus between those two things. Um and not just operations. Operations are, you know, military operational history is you know, fun to read and it's interesting, but it's never, I want to say, excited me as much. Now, again, I'm going to show my nerd side here. Uh, planning and strategy have always been very interesting for me. So I want to look at that nexus of strategic and operational planning and infectious diseases. And I think the best laboratory for that is the First World War. Because it is this nexus of times, both militarily, but also medically. In 18, I want to say 1898, and don't take me to court on that because I haven't reviewed my notes recently. 1898, Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur are having their, basically their big science off. They're, they're, they're competing against each other, even if they don't know they're competing against each other for these different aspects of what becomes the germ theory of disease. In 1898, Robert Koch publishes his landmark piece on tuberculosis. He identifies tuberculosis, its methodologies, and the way it spreads. Nobody knew how it was spreading from person to person. Once he said, hey, every time you cough, you expel little tuberculosis things. Every time you spit, every time you, you, you sneeze, tuberculosis everywhere. All of a sudden, the world, and, and, and the science was indisputable, it was, and to the point where the world was starting to accept it now. I mean, there had been indisputable science back then. Galileo was pretty 100% positive that the, the Earth was going around the sun, uh, but there were a whole bunch of people who were like, no, 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 we don't believe you yet. Uh, to be fair, there are still people that don't believe him. There are people that believe the Earth is flat, but whatever. The science was absolutely indisputable on this one to the point where the public accepted it. And tuberculosis went from being this romantic, if you will, disease of, of Doc Hollywood, right, of... of uh, the romantic poets of Chekhov, to being this really sort of like gross and horrifying and uh, unpleasant thing. This is when sanitariums became big money, big deals, because everybody was really trying to get rid of tuberculosis. It wasn't sexy anymore. 
And, and that's, that's a word I'm going to use because it's the right word to use to describe something like tuberculosis uh, because uh, it, it was viewed as almost being not just socially acceptable, but socially desirable to be tubercular. You became thin. You became pale. You became pallid and, and calm and introspective. This was about the same time where we start seeing these ideals of beauty switching from full to the more thin, from the flushed in the face to the pallid and the pale. We can see that following in art and movie as well. A lot of that comes from tuberculosis. We tend to think about you know, the 1900s and the 19-teens and 1920s as this era of uh, changing of dress and standards of appearance. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that tuberculosis has become a known accepted disease and its methods of transmission understand, you know, uh, skirts become, start getting shorter because they didn't want to drag mud on their dress hems into the house anymore. Sanitation and hygiene became big deals. We, I always tend, you know, there's it, it a big joke in the military that we're not allowed to have beards because of the, uh, the gas, the requirement to have to wear a gas mask, which is in part accurate, right? But not entirely accurate. We stopped having beards around World War I, not only because gas masks, but also because if you had a big bushy beard or a mustache and you sneezed, and tuberculosis would get stuck in your mustache and spread it. So removal of facial hair was an anti-tuberculosis measure. It's all tied together. So you've got this, this time period where germ theory of disease is becoming known and understood. Tuberculosis, cholera, typhus, all these known quantities start to become coalesced and understood of how to avoid, how to avoid them. Hygiene becomes an important thing. It's no longer, you know, if you were in the field for a couple days, you wanted a bath or a shower or something. It wasn't like the old marching for days and days and days in the same uniform because that was normal. You only packed one pair of clothes and you just piled jackets on top of it. No, 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 no. This is a totally different game now. But you've got that new understanding of the world right there at the turn of the, of the century moving into the First World War, along with this massive deployment of forces from everywhere. And they're all in a tiny, small area of the Western Front. Belgians, French, British, Germans, Italians, and the Empire forces. India, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Brazil, Costa Rica, eventually the United States, Canada, everybody from the world is all dumping into Western France in the same time period, bringing with them their diseases and creating a laboratory for disease. And if you inject something like flu into that, how does that change everything? And that's what I really want to look is from the planning perspective, because while it's called the Spanish flu, it's American. It's called the Spanish flu because the, one of the only uh, nations in the world that wasn't under strict press censorship during the war was Spain because they were neutral. When King Alfonso the 13th, I think, uh, became very sick with it, he, it, it made the papers. And that was widely published around the world because it was big news. So it became the Spanish flu. But it came from Camp Funston, Kansas, right next to Fort Riley. We brought it. I mean, and there are several major differing opinions on the genesis of flu, and it's likely that all of them are true. 
there was a strain out that was brought from the Chinese building uh, railroads on both sides of the front. There was a strain that likely began in France, and then there was the Camp Funston strain that likely all arrived at the same time, and that's one of the hallmarks of flu. Flu is an extremely unstable virus. It's an RNA virus. It means it only has half of, like, you know, DNA is dioxyribonucleic acid. Well, RNA is just ribonucleic acid, only one, one, one half of it, basically. So it's inherently really unstable. And when a flu uh, virus infects a cell and it does its replication and then through the process of lysis, which is basically the cell exploding and throwing all the new viruses out everywhere, most of those are junk. Uh, they're, they're not flu. They're half-formed or completely unformed or sometimes not even formed at all random protein bits. And then there are some that are relatively the same type of flu, and then there are some that come out of that lysis process that are wholly different strands of flu. And if they become very, very effective at reproducing themselves and continuing that, then that strain takes off. But also, if you happen to get two strains of flu at the same time, and they decide to start commingling those bits of junk processes as they infect cells, you can create a whole new strain of virus. And that's likely what happened when we're about on the Western Front, is that a couple of really bad flus turned into the worst imaginable flu. And the 1918 flu, the Spanish flu, really made its best use. And again, this is when we talk about is, are these viruses alive or not, they're, are they intelligent? Absolutely not. It's a single piece of, of, half of half a piece of DNA wrapped in some protein goop. Yet, flu, traditionally, attacks the young and the elderly. The, the, those in the prime of their lives end up with a less than half of, less than 1% of 1% of, uh, of getting sick, or, or I shouldn't say of getting sick, of dying from that, of a mortality rate, a case fatality rate uh, for that disease. The Spanish flu uncharacteristically focused on adults 18 to 35 years of age. The military age male, that's who was on the Western Front. And that's what the virus decided to focus on. So instead of having a 1% of 1% case fatality rate, there was about a 30% case fatality rate. But about an 80% morbidity rate, which means about 80% of everybody on the Western Front got sick with the flu in one fashion or another. And it was debilitating. You would be down for a week or two, writhing in agony with this strain of flu. And, and then if you came out of it, there were a week or two of convalescence and then several uh, sequelae, uh, which is a, a medical term for the follow-on things that can come from these diseases just by having them that you can deal with for the rest of your life. Flu had a compendium of neurologic sequ uh, sequelae that messed with people for the rest of their lives. Higher instances of stroke and uh, encephalitis followed uh, flu survivors. And that's one of the things that we haven't yet come out of understanding in COVID yet is those sequelae. And I remember uh, having to tell this to a couple of my students at one point. I, I don't remember if this was my epidemics class or if it was in my, uh, my naval history classes when we just happened to be talking about coronavirus. And I said, you know, hey, the number one symptom of coronavirus is that it messes with your taste of sense and smell. And everybody's like, yeah, that's accurate. And I'm like, cool. So we're talking about an upper respiratory disease that gets into your lungs and makes you hack and cough and lots of lung scarring and everything, and also interrupts the neurochemical process between your nose and your tongue and your brain. 
That's a neurologic side effect. It's not staying in your lungs, folks. It's nasty and it's bad. And that opened up a lot of eyes and people just weren't thinking about that. And I was like, hey, and there's a lot of folks who have come out of the disease and they haven't regained their sense of smell or taste yet. It's a long-term neurologic sequelae that's messing with your brain chemistry. That's nasty. And that opened up a lot of eyes, I think, just in realizing, like, yeah, maybe this was a little bit more serious than they were taking, taking it granted for. And again, because prime of your life, 1% of 1% were getting sick and only 1% of those died. It's a totally different game when we talk about something like Spanish flu. So that's the laboratory I want to look at because I want to look at how the American Expeditionary Forces decided to deploy to the war with the flu and then fight the war with the flu. And then how did the French and the British and the Belgians and the Germans change their operations with these diseases? Cholera was rampant in the trenches, which is a terrible way to go. Typhus was rampant in the trenches in 1916 as well. And then you throw flu on it as well. And it's not just, you know, who's getting sick and who's dying. It's who's getting sick and who's coming back. Who's in the hospital and for how long. You know, manning levels were crucial aspects of, of, of trench warfare. And I want to understand how the armies tried to, to army, for lack of a better way to put it, amongst this context at that perfect time when large armies were still things and disease was understood, but we didn't have the understanding for curative properties or to contain it the way we do with modern, uh, modern medicine and, and theory. It's, it, to me, it is this fascinating, forgotten understanding of the war, uh, but also of, of modern life at the turn of the century. That's where I'm hoping to go, at least with, with the doctorate, and see what I come out with that. But you know, i got to go where the research takes me. I could end up doing something completely different. Who knows? So thank you for joining us once again, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to. It's, uh, it's, I love talking about it. Again, that was Major Joe Ennett, a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer who has just completed his tour with the History Department at the United States Naval Academy. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.